Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. I am joined today by Kelly Bushnell, who is basically the definition of water women. She's a scuba diver, a scholar, and teacher of ocean literature, and has spent plenty of time in, around, and advocating for the water and the creatures living in it. Kelly, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Jill. I am indeed Dr. Kelly Bushnell. I'm a scholar and a teacher of ocean humanities, which means that I study and teach ocean literature, history, and culture in the archives and out in the field. That is so cool. That's a very interesting and very niche kind of thing. It is. And you know, there are getting to be more of us, but the humanities has not always been the kind of place where you could go out and do field work. So I like to think that we are starting to reimagine what a humanities scholar might look like. Yeah. So can you, how did you find this? How did you know that this is something you wanted to pursue? Because it is kind of like when people think of oceans and water studies, they're not exactly, humanities isn't the thing that comes to mind for most people, I don't think it's more so like the science behind it. So I'd love to hear how you got into this. Absolutely. And you're so right. Um, and that's where I started. I always knew that I wanted to study the ocean. And as a kid, I was fascinated by marine biology and I was obsessed with my field guides. I grew up on the West Coast in California and here in Puget Sound near Seattle. And I just memorized those laminated field guides. But as I got older and I developed a love of the arts and the humanities and reading, I realized that what I really wanted to do was study the ocean, not necessarily through the sciences, but through the imagination. So I love science, but I'm even more fascinated by the stories that we tell about the ocean and why we tell them and the history of, um, of creatures and human interaction with them. And I also realized that the humanities might be a way that we could address some of the most pressing environmental problems of our time. So climate crisis and ocean pollution, like microplastics and the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, these are all things that I think require interdisciplinary solutions because they're interdisciplinary problems. They're not purely scientific problems. I think they can only be solved through cooperation between sciences and arts and humanities because they are anthropogenic human-caused problems. And I, I'll actually, I'll read you a, a verse from a poem I like to start some of my classes with. And this is uh, from Derek Walcott's The Sea is History. And Derek Walcott, uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1992 he was born in 1930 in the West Indies. So this is one that I've also taught uh, in the Caribbean when we brought our students down there. And he writes, where are your monuments, your battles, your martyrs? Where is your tribal memory? Sirs, in that gray vault, the sea. The sea has locked them up. The sea is history. And in fact, those words, the sea is history, are emblazoned right when you walk into the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich in London, which is where I do a lot of my archival work. And so that phrase, the sea is history, is something that's always rolling around in my brain, the sort of ballast of my brain is that the sea is history. Wow, that is, it really is. And you, mm. wow, that is powerful. That is, because it really is, there's so much not even just lost in the sea, things that we know are down there and 
all of human history has been touched in some form or another by the sea. Exactly. So it's it's physical. It's deeply physical and archaeological and material and things that you can actually touch. But then it's also the the intangible. And so the sea is often used as a metaphor. So we we talk about like the depths of the soul or a character's wide open future is expressed as the sea before him, something like that. And it's almost always men, right? Um, in all these texts, yeah, <laughs> until recently, um, or something like that. And there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, with the sea as a metaphor, except that it's very anthropocentric. So that is, it places the focus of the sea on humans. And the kind of texts that I'm most interested in are the literary texts that take the sea and its creatures, especially creatures, this is my obsession, that take them seriously as ends unto themselves. So not as means in terms of in service of making a point about humans. Absolutely. Yeah. So a great example of that, I'm going to throw another poem at you. One of my, A great example of that is uh, one of my very favorites. This is from Sarah Lindsay's really fantastic book of poetry. I think it's from 2013. It's called Debt to the Bone-Eating Snot Flower. And the scientists are going to recognize that the bone-eating snot flower is the Osidex worm. So it is a bone-eating worm that looks a lot like a flower. It's kind of mucusy looking. Um, and a lot of this book is about what we might call the uncharismatic creatures. So you've got your charismatic megafauna, orca, et cetera, the things that, we, that are cute enough for us to want to save. Exactly. But then, exactly, but then in this book... She's got poems about the Osidax worm and my very, very favorite here, the carnivorous sponges of the Antarctic Ocean. And that. in it, <laughs> I know it's so great. It's, it's just, it's one of my absolute favorite poems to teach. So in it, we have these alternating verses in which italicized verses are spoken by a chorus of the sponges themselves so they say things like, we are adequately nourished or dead. We are near the optimum temperature or dead. Currents feed us, shadows pass between us, and light when there is light. We are clustered in a suitable place or dead. So they're almost like this, like a Greek chorus in Antigone or one of the classical plays, um, talking about the precarity of their situation. And then they're also described in these unitalicized alternating verses by sort of a David Attenborough type voice who describes them um, with lines like faceless, gourd-shaped animals clamped to the floor of a frigid sea. So it's a beautiful poem. I recommend this book to everyone because I absolutely love it. Um, and the last thing that the sponges say to us, we hold to life as though it is dear to us. And so I'll just, I'll just leave that one floating out there a little bit. Yeah. We hold to life as though it is dear to us. So raising perhaps more questions than answers about the nature of the carnivorous sponge of the Antarctic Ocean. Yeah. As much as one can be said to inhabit the carnivorous sponge, narratively speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I liked what you said earlier when you mentioned... Um getting people to care about things that are more than just this charismatic thing because I work with whales and it's pretty easy to get people to care about the whale. <laughs> yeah. Because they see that there are these big, huge animals that are flopping around and coming to see you and they're so curious. But then we'll go see, um, there's some eagles around and even eagles, people are like, oh, those are so cool. And 
I'll talk about some sharks even, or even some smaller animals. And we have a touch tank and I'll bring out sea stars and people are like, well, why should I care about sea stars? Like, what are they doing to me? And I'm like, yeah, what? Why do they have to be doing something for you <laughs> in order for you to care about them? Like these animals are so important. Like, I don't think people realize how interconnected things are. Like mm-hmm. if we lose sea stars, not that they're endangered or anything, but if we lost sea stars, for example, that would affect the dynamics of everything. And it's so important to realize that even without being directly connected, you're so interconnected with this ocean. You're so right, Jill. And I think that is a place where the arts and humanities, where this is where we really shine, um, you know, by creating a sort of a narrative, which interestingly enough, you know, we say now, oh, we love whales. We love killer whales. We can't understand how anyone would want to harm them. But even that position that comes so easily to us now is the process of very careful narrative handling, funnily enough, by SeaWorld. I mean, killer whales were just that. In the 19th century, the period that I studied for such a long time um, for my PhD, they were absolutely feared, reviled. Um, And then because SeaWorld wanted to sell them back to us as something cuddly, they created the creature we wanted to love. And now it's, you know, we've, we've taken it upon ourselves, fortunately, as the public to say we don't want these animals um, imprisoned anymore. But all of that was a very calculated narrative move. So that, that was the humanities in action. If you're looking for an eco-friendly alternative to storing your food and keeping it fresh and lasting a long time, then I have the answer for you. Wax wraps. Hear me out. Wax wraps are a lot better than Tupperware containers. They take up less room and you can mold them to fit exactly around whatever you're trying to store or keep fresh. They're also so easy to clean and keep things fresh for such a long time. My personal favorite is Jilly Bee's Wax Wraps. Jilly Bee's Wax Wraps are a local wax wrap that you can get in New Brunswick. They're handmade using locally sourced beeswax and all natural and organic resins and oils. Like I said, they are local to New Brunswick. If you're interested in purchasing some, send her a direct message on Facebook or Instagram and she'd be happy to help you out. You can check out Jilly Bee's Wax Wraps on Facebook and Instagram at Jilly Bee's Wax Wraps. It'll be linked in our bio and also tagged on our Instagram. So check them out and get your wax wraps so you can start keeping your food fresh for longer. What is the path that you took to get to where you are now? This is obviously something that didn't happen overnight. And how could someone who wanted to kind of do what you do, how would they go about doing that? Mm -hmm. So academically, my path was relatively traditional. So I went straight from high school to college. Uh, I went to the University of California in San Diego for my undergrad. So I was right there on the ocean. You know, UCSD has um, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. So even though I was studying history and literature, I was still on the ocean all the time at at Birch Aquarium. Um, So really benefiting from having all of those resources there. 
And then I went to Mills College for my master's. And by that time, I had sort of funneled myself more into the literature than the history uh, path, knowing that I would come back later. But in grad school, you know, you kind of have to choose. Um, So at Mills, that's where I really added the uh, the fundamental theoretical grounding in feminist theory and feminist studies and ecofeminism that informs so much of how I work today. Um, yeah. So thinking about ecofeminism as not just the relationships between gender and nature, but really the relationship between environmental and social justice, which is something that the sciences do often um, need a little bit of intervention in because science has, and, and the other other um, academic disciplines as well, but science has unfortunately really been used as a tool of colonialism in a lot of parts mm-hmm. of the world. And so this is something that at, when the humanities cooperate with the sciences, you know, we can do a lot of good toward decolonization. Um, so that was uh, a theoretical grounding that I started to get at Mills. And then I went on to the University of London for my PhD at Royal Holloway. And my dissertation there looked at 19th century British sea literatures, and I was especially interested in ideas about monstrosity. So I was interested in these texts in what makes a monster during this time, because this is a a time of early aquariums, exhibitions, obviously worldwide colonialism. This is a time when, uh, you know, Britannia rules the waves, but they're still piecing together what sort of critters might rule the depths, because all of that power, as Byron says, control stops at the shore, he writes in his in Child Herald. Um, so despite ruling the waves, there's really very little idea what's happening under the waves. And so I was fascinated by what poets were saying about this. And so I looked at texts like Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Kraken, which is a short, it's kind of a, a purposefully disfigured sonnet that, that was published in 1830. And I take that poem and I bounce it off some of the texts of early attempts at private and public aquariums and the ways in which the public might have understood such a creature like the Kraken, which really is underpinned, the mythology is underpinned by the giant squid. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in texts like that. I looked at um, the earliest cetacean captivity in Victorian Britain. So the first couple of beluga whales, which were transported to Britain to be uh, exhibited in the 1870s. And wow. from, yeah, and from there, that early. that early, well, and in the U.S., uh, P.T. Barnum was exhibiting them even earlier. Oh my goodness. Yes. In fact, they came from your neck of the woods. They were, oh, no, actually they were from Newfoundland. Um, but they, Still. Um, yeah, yeah. And they didn't, of course, last very long because husbandry was in its very earliest yeah. stages then. Um, but it really, we can really learn a lot about material culture and about the sorts of stories we tell ourselves about animals from these early attempts. So you've used this and you've gotten to teach in a lot of different places. Where have you been and what have you been teaching? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I've been really lucky to teach in a lot of different places geographically and in terms of uh, different types of institutions. So I've taught writing at community college. I um, was visiting lecturer at University of London. I've been at University of West Florida for a few years. And most recently, I was fortunate enough to be 
the literature faculty member at the Williams Mystic Interdisciplinary Ocean and Coastal Studies Program, which is run by Williams College at Mystic Seaport in Connecticut. Uh, and it's just a, an incredible, immersive, semester-long program that brings undergraduates from all over the country. And they live and work and study at Mystic Seaport, which is the largest working historic seaport in the U.S. And then we also go on several field seminars. So just this January, we got back the first week of February, fortunately, before um, the pandemic really got underway. Uh, we spent 11 days on the tall ship SSV Core with Kramer, which is owned by the Sea Education Association. And our students, along with the, the professional crew, sailed the Kramer from Puerto Rico to St. John in the Greater Antilles and back. And the entire time they were handling sails, they were cooking in the galley, they were doing experiments in the onboard lab. They were with me and I was forcing them to write poems. Um, it was just an incredible 11 days. Um, and on one day, we, land we only landed one day out of those 11 days. We landed on St. John. And we had the students hike up to Annaberg Sugar Plantation. And this is just one of those teaching days that you never, ever forget as a teacher. Because there we were in the ruins of Annaberg Sugar Plantation, one of the most notorious sugar plantations in the Caribbean in terms of violence. And this was um, a place where in 1733, the enslaved Africans there um, rose up and took back the plantation. And... Um, there's quite a famous poem by Alphaeus Osario Norman about the uprising. And we read that poem as we stood in the ruins and looked at the cliff where it said that the last heroes of the uprising, rather than be taken by the slaveholders, threw themselves off this cliff. And we read this poem there and it was just a powerful class period I will never forget. And yeah, yeah, and looking at the ruins, which are some of the bricks are actually made of the brain coral from the um, from the coral reef below. Yeah. And so we hiked there and we looked around and we touched that coral. And then our students hiked down the cliff and we took them into the water. And for some of them, it was their first time snorkeling. And we looked at that reef. And we looked at the animals there and how the reef is mostly bleached now, um, but just connecting the literary, the architectural, the biological, it was a day I'll never forget. Yeah, that sounds, so like, not that you have ever had a favorite anything, but that's <laughs> definitely up there, huh? Yeah, sorry, everybody. It was Williams Mystic. <laughs> <laughs> So you've done, what are you doing now for your work? What is, where has this taken you? What is your like field work and whatnot? Where has this brought you? Yes. Yeah, so um, most recently I was also, um, I did a fellowship at the Rachel Carson Center in Munich, um, the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. And while I was there, I was working on a book with my co-author, uh, who is a traditional knowledge keeper from Nunavut. And the book explores coming of age in the Arctic, which the Arctic is a central theme of my research, um, coming of age in an Arctic in which the effects of climate change are already inextricable from the really violent social and cultural changes that have been wrought by colonialism. 
Um, so it's a story about resilience and it's about the Arctic as a space of Inuit cultural revitalization. But it's also a text in which we are trying to emphasize, like I do in all my work, that the people who are least responsible for the oceanic effects of climate crisis, like rising and warming seas and ocean acidification, the people who are least responsible for it are already the first ones to feel it. So for me, the populations that I work on literary-wise now are Inuit in Canada, in Alaska, in Greenland. And so a text here that I highly recommend checking out, and especially teaching for any teachers listening, um, is a a spoken word poem called Rise. It was sponsored by 350.org and written and performed by the Greenlandic Inuk poet Akanibiana and the Marshallese poet Kathy Yetanel Kitchener. So they wrote this poem and they perform it together on a glacier in Greenland. And the poem is organized around the trajectory that Akka's home in Greenland is melting and it's flooding Kathy's, the Marshall Islands. Yeah. And so the idea of of the Arctic Ocean and and really the idea of the North, because North is really as as much an idea as it is a direction, uh, that's been pretty central to a lot of my work, especially the past few years. So in terms of 19th century, uh, Frankenstein, for instance, I love to teach Frankenstein, but the thing I'm really fascinated about that text is why Mary Shelley chose to frame the monster narrative with an Arctic Ocean voyage. So this is a thing that gets left out of most of the Frankenstein films, which is that the beginning and the end of that text actually take place on a ship in the Arctic Ocean. Wow, I had no idea about that. Yeah, yeah. And so there are are a lot of reasons for that, sort of what Southerners or Europeans would describe as the blankness of white Arctic space, when really, of course, it's teeming with life. Um, But I also think that a lot of people don't necessarily think of the Arctic as a place which was and is a colonized space. No, yeah, you definitely think of it as kind of like this huge empty space like this vast open not even feels just open snow-packed land exactly and so some of the things that i think literature and history have done well and if you truly cooperate with indigenous traditional knowledge keepers um, and not just rely on the european source texts which are easy to find um i think something that literature can do well is make that known how yeah. how incredibly intricate and beautiful and how much is contained in every square meter of the ice and below it and all around it and how many seasons there are and just how there's communities up there and it's not just this vast open land like I remember watching these movies growing up that would have it there. And the first one that showed, I remember it was called um, Big Miracle. And it was with, it's got John Krasinski and it's about the three gray whales that get trapped. Oh yeah. And I remember watching that and I can't even remember when that, it's 2011. So Mm -hmm. I was already like 11, 14 years old. And I remember being like, oh, there's actual like, towns up there like mm-hmm. people can live there like I could go live there I thought it was just the native peoples that could live there and I thought it was like very 
remote, like they wouldn't have had a hospital, they wouldn't have had a grocery store. Like, so learning that, it, and I wouldn't have gotten that through just scientific communications or anything of the sort. Like it came through different ways of not literature, but uh, communications and stories almost. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think it's important for us to to privilege the stories of the traditional stewards of that Ooh. land and that ocean, because without them, we really have no, and by we, I mean, settler scholars who have yep. traditionally been uh, responsible for a lot of the disenfranchisement of traditional knowledge, that without truly incorporating traditional knowledge and its practitioners, we have no business being there. Oh, absolutely not. And so that, that phrase, nothing about us without us, really rings true. That's really not just in the sciences. That is good practice in the humanities as well. Yeah. So I would really like for the academic humanities and the arts to reimagine what fieldwork might look like. So I love the archive. I love every moment in British library. I love the smell of the pages. I love everything about it. But I also love diving. And I think it's incredibly important to take people who are trained not just as scientists, but as humanists, as philosophers, as writers, and to put them under the water because we see things really differently based on the way we've been trained to think. So not better or worse, just differently. And I think especially that is true in an extreme environment like the Arctic Ocean. Um, so Jill, if I'm ever allowed on the podcast again, I'll tell you about how I flooded my dry suit in one degree water in Greenland. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, no, we're coming back to that story. We've got to come back. <laughs> oh man. It was, uh, spoiler alert, it was operator error. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, <laughs> putting people who are trained in the humanities Un, truly under the surface, under the water, I think yields really exciting results um, when we work with scientists. You're going to get two different perspectives. I've always said this. I've said it on previous podcasts. Uh, scientists have such a very, not black and white, but different way of looking at the world. Like you said, like very different, neither better nor worse, but different. And you're trained to be almost always analytic and always looking at things to understand them rather than I feel like the humanities is looking at things to experience them so you almost are seeing it totally different and different places of the world and just there could be so many different outlooks of this one thing it's the one thing that kind of connects us all this ocean because we all have connections to it somehow even if you don't think you do exactly so all the different like all the different outlooks are just absolutely amazing Exactly. And that's what I find so exciting. I mean, one of my closest friends who I'm designing a new project with, um, Erica Moulton in St. Petersburg, builds ROVs, builds underwater ROVs. And we were up in a couple years ago, we were up in Nunavut and Greenland teaching kids how to build ROVs with just lengths of PVC and little cameras. Um, and this was, And I felt like I was exploring right along with them. Um, and it's just been such an exciting collaboration because she has this incredible mechanical mind. And then I'm just looking through the camera thinking, wow, it's a lens within a lens. And I'm watching this, the kids experience it for the first time. And I'm thinking about historically what it might have meant to look under the ocean in these different communities. Um, and 
those are exciting moments for me. Those truly interdisciplinary moments where a robot expert and a literature teacher can come together in Greenland and hang out with some kids and look under the water. I love that. Somehow I have made it uh, this far in the sciences, having a humanities mind, I think, because I still sometimes when I'm looking at a microscope, I'm like, man, these things are so tiny. How am I seeing this? (laughs) I think the best scientists are like that. They never lose that capital W wonder. (laughs) Capital W wonder. I absolutely love that. I think that's how people would describe me. I've heard my professors even describe me as having like a kid in the class in the best way possible because every time they'll say something I'm like that is so cool like what like my mind is so easily blown by things right yeah which I think is the best way to be because if you're like the world's amazing there's so many amazing things to learn from it that it just let it blow your mind let it be so exciting I totally agree And I think if you're looking at it too much of a scientific, like, okay, yeah, this makes sense because of this. Like, no, there's some magic in the world. There's definitely magic in the world. There is. Yes. The world is magic. And I'm not too worried about explaining it. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes (laughs) you just got to accept things that have happened. Mm -hmm. Now, you've also had a lot of volunteer experiences. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and some of the things you've done? Yeah. So this is something I always tell my students, and that is... If you just keep showing up somewhere long enough, they're going to let you do cool stuff. So when I was in uh, early in grad school, I was living in Virginia Beach and I started volunteering with the Virginia Aquarium Marine Mammal and Turtle Stranding Program. And I was there at least once a week, practically all day. And, you know, most of what a stranding team does, 90% of it's already dead. So you're, you're picking up something off the beach. It's stinky. It's probably in pieces. And the end goal is a necropsy. But then occasionally, you know, we did pick up uh, Virginia, mid-Atlantic. So plenty of cold stone turtles in the fall and winter, um, which we were able to rehabilitate and then release in the spring, which is always a great feeling. But I learned so much there just, you know, by hanging out, listening, watching, and then eventually somebody asks you to hold a turtle while they take its blood. <laughs> or and, and I learned so much, not just about the animals, but about the workings of scientific research, about how I wanted to structure my own career adjacent to the sciences and the humanities. I learned about public outreach and how to talk to the public about relatively complex scientific concepts and to break them down and learn how to communicate better. And I also just developed such a love for turtles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I hadn't expected before for sea turtles. We had this beautiful, big loggerhead, Coretta Coretta, called Boise. And her one of her back fins had been, or her back uh, flippers had been damaged beyond repair. And she was going to have to live the rest of her life in an aquarium. But first she had to be target trained. So Boise's about 250 pounds. And in order for her to be target trained, somebody has to swim up underneath her and push her up toward the target so she can start to associate the target with food. And on Thursdays, I had the distinct honor of being the pusher. 
So I would hop in, hop, hop in Boise's tank, swim down underneath her and push her up. And the thing that I think most people don't realize about loggerheads is they have thumbnails like a dragon. And the thumbnail oh is goodness, not yeah. the, uh, this is not the anatomically correct term, but that's <laughs> certainly what it looks like. Um, and so, you know, you learn where to, where to support her and where not to, lest you get a thumbnail in the eye. Um, but those were also beautiful moments because how often do you get to physically make contact with an animal? Because when we're scuba diving, you know, we are no touch, no take. We always, you may never, ever get in the way of an animal or put your hands on an animal in a way that would be distressing to them. And so this was such a fascinating opportunity you know, as a humanities person, I'm often thinking about the five senses. So to actually engage my tactile sense of being connected to an animal. Yeah. Yep. It's an unreal experience. Yes. Yeah. I, I carry that with me forever. I love that There's old dinosaur. I like it. <laughs> the old dinosaur. She's I a good girl. <laughs> uh, there really is nothing. I'm the same way as you were like, I'm a very not... I'm a very kinetic learner and I need to feel mm. things mm-hmm. sometimes. And I'll never forget the first time I went diving in the open water and suddenly all these fish were around me and I could like feel them like rubbing up against me. And part mm-hmm. of me, the half of me that is absolutely terrified of fish, I uh, hated it. But the other <laughs> half of me, which is a marine biologist and again, amazed by literally everything was like, uh-huh. this is so cool. This was like life changing. But then back to the other half of me that was like, these fish are going to, eat me I don't care if they're the size of the palm of my hand they're going to eat me I think that's the proper response though (laughs) I really think it is I think that's the human response I think that's the the humble response (laughs) I uh, have somehow made it this far being a marine biologist being uh, having a deep deep rooted hatred of fish I don't know how and I don't know why, but I, there's literally a picture of me. I grew up on a lake and there's a picture of me somewhere holding a fish and I look like I'm ready to scream and I'm like half jumping away from it and I'm like obviously miserable. And somehow I still pursued marine biology. <laughs> you must. I think that means you must. <laughs> Yeah, like I gotta face my fears. The best part is I'm not scared of dead fish, so I had no problem oh, okay. dissecting them. Well, that's good. When they were alive, I wasn't their biggest fan. <laughs> Which is why I think I study whales because whales eat fish. So there you go. The Adontis eats. You must study them. <laughs> awesome. Really, oh, you've got really to come fun. out and see our our killer whales. Oh, those are kill. I have never seen an orca. It's one of the them and a blue whale are the two. Actually, there's a lot of whales on my list, but uh, orcas and blue whales are like my top two. Like I have to, I have to see them. Oh yeah, we got to get you out to the Pacific. I'm done. I'm condensed. I will be coming <laughs> to visit very soon. <laughs> so, if someone wanted to jump in and find some books or literature to read. What would you suggest to them? What would be your basic starter suggestions and then also some more like advanced in-depth things? Sure. Well, I am actually, <laughs> I actually love, love, love Moby Dick. And that is the, you know, that's the boss level. That's sort of like, a, you know, you build up your whole life to read that novel. Um, but I do think that people should give it a go at least once in their lifetime, especially whale people. 
because my favorite parts of Moby Dick are the parts that always get taken out in the abridged version that are really minute details about um, cetology. <laughs> so you, I think you would love those parts, Jill. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I think at some point, everybody's got to give Moby Dick a go. But I am really always a huge cheerleader for the incredible female poets writing about the ocean today. So Ooh. Sarah Lindsay, um, Kathy Yetanel Kitchener, the Marshallese poet, uh, Aka Nibiana in Greenland, writing about the Arctic. And actually I'll, I'll send you a list and I'd like to, I'd like to give your, your listeners some homework if I may. Absolutely. Please do. <laughs> and that would be, and that would be uh, Adrian Rich's poem, Diving into the Wreck. So it's very, very accessible online. And this was a radical poem for its time. And I love it not just as a diver, but as a feminist, uh, because the wreck that our speaker is diving into is not just a shipwreck. It's, spoiler alert, sorry, it's the outdated patriarchy. And she's ready to just destroy it and write her own name in this quote unquote book of myths in which our names have not yet appeared. And so I think this is a perfect one for us to end on because the historian in me always wants to emphasize to my fellow water women that women on the water and in the water, we are not a new phenomenon. Women have always been on the water. We've always been near the water. We've always been fishing and swimming and diving. We've always been here, but we've been written out of the history. Yes, a hundred times, yeah. yes. But not anymore, thanks to people like you, Jill, <laughs> and thanks to poets and writers and historians, like not to pat myself on the back, but trying to oh. to recover a lot of these stories of women on and in and around the water. And pat so yourself on the back. That's so important. <laughs> that is true. As women, we need to make sure we do that a lot. We're good at patting Absolutely. each other on the back. We are an awful yeah. at patting ourselves. Always. Um so that is, that's my diving into the wreck, homework and reflection. We've always been here and now we're finally recognizing it. We belong on the water, in the water. And I would also add, so I recently, um, I work part-time with Seattle Dive Tours here in Puget Sound, which is, I think, the most incredible dive shop that's so progressive in terms of um, Women dive pros are actually only about 20% of dive professionals right now. And wow. at Seattle Dive Tours, it's more like 70% of the staff is women. You love to see it. And we are super ecocentric, really leaning into that nerdiness. And so we've also got a book club. And this has been such a fun thing that we've been working on during COVID is that we're reading and we're talking about books and we're taking the best parts of a class that I might teach along with the best parts of a book club. And the first book that we read was Lisa C's The Island of Sea Women. And I, it just came out in 2019 and it's an incredible novel that chronicles almost an entire century in the life of a couple women who are uh, Hanyo, so they're sea women of Jeju Island, Korea. And these are real women. The, the book is a novel, but these are real women uh, who have been free divers in the sea, in and around the island of Jeju, South Korea, for centuries. 
And so this is a book that I recommend to any woman who is remotely interested in the ocean or not, because it really is also a book about finding the ocean within yourself and all of the parallels between the fertility and fecundity of the ocean and of the female body without over-determining what it means to be a woman. That's what I love about it. So another text that I would recommend wholeheartedly, um, but if you just want to, if you just want to dip your toes in, start with Diving into the Wreck by Adrian Rich. I love that. So we will make sure that all of these uh, pieces of work will be listed in the description and also featured on our Instagram so that they're easier for you guys to find when you're looking for them, because I know you will be, or you better be. <laughs> I also wanted to bring up, do you get called Dr. Kelpie? <laughs> yeah so um my family calls me kelpie because kelly and kelp um and also my middle initial is p so it kind of makes sense kelpie um and yeah so when i started the instagram i thought you know i'm already on twitter but on twitter i only talk to other academics so i figured i'd make an instagram you know where the youths are so we could, I could maybe, you know, talk a little bit about women and literature and oceans uh, to a little bit different audience. So I figured, you know, what's going to make me sound accessible <laughs> but, and oceanic uh, and also requisitely nerdy. So Dr. Kelpie it is. I love it. It's a perfect fit for you. <laughs> so if people want to find you on Instagram, they can find you at Dr. Kelpie, Dr. Kelpie, like Dr. Kelpie, which is easy to find. Uh, if people want to follow along with you anywhere else or check you out anywhere else, where can they do that? Sure. Kellypbushnell.com. It's got some work you can read, some bibliographies you can check out for more reading, some syllabi if you want to kind of follow along with a class, or you can just shoot me an email and I'm always happy to talk about literature. That is so cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly. It was awesome to have you on. And I absolutely loved this episode. So I cannot wait to share it. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jill. And thanks for everything you do. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. You can follow along with Water Women on all our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Water Women podcast and on Twitter at Water Women pod. You can also check out our website, waterwomenpodcast.ca, for some interactive activities and for a behind-the-scenes look at each podcast and the woman behind it. And until next week, stay salty. Mm -hmm.